0: The slats in the Venetian blinds in Victor Koch's bedroom shut out the rich orange rays of the late afternoon sun, but not the noise. From outside came the dissonant chant of children's voices, piping and persistent. Ugly, ugly, ugly. Birdhead, birdhead. Freak, freak, freak. And then he heard his father's voice from down below. Get out of here, you kids. Get out of here before I call the police. The chant was broken up. There were giggles, squeals, and some raucous laughter along with one last defiant little voice like the tape inside of a wind-up doll. Victor's an ugly bird head freak. Victor sat on the floor in the corner of the room. A stocking cap pulled down over his head so that it rested just above his eyes. It looked like a wilted dunce cap or a wind sock in the middle of a calm. As he sat there in the cool, quiet comfortable darkness, he heard his father's voice in a last, hopeless tirade. And don't come back, you crummy kids, his father yelled from below, or you'll be sorry. I guarantee it, you'll be sorry. And so begins the short story in teleplay of an episode of Night Gallery called The Different Ones. It's a a story that's set far into the future, a story about a boy named Victor Koch who was born with a hideous, grotesque face and head. His parents have struggled with the fact that Victor has spent his life in his bedroom with his head covered, hiding away from a cruel world. So they decide to do something about it. The story continues with their conversation. Doris, we've got, we've got some decisions to make. His wife half closed her eyes. He's 17. Mr. Koch persisted. He's not a child anymore. Doris Koch's fingers traveled nervously along the fringe of her apron, plucking, twisting, pulling. I won't have him put away, she said in a quiet, desperate kind of fury. Koch shook his head and his voice was very soft. Honey, he said, I don't think we have any choice. He can't live the rest of his life huddled in a corner of his bedroom. It's destroying him. It's destroying us. Mrs. Koch's voice was broken. Where? Would they send him? Mr. Koch shook his head. I don't know. But much more of this, we wouldn't have a son anyway. We'd have just a a silent piece of scar tissue who cringes in dark corners. So Victor's father gets on a futuristic computerized television that is on their living room wall, and he asks the government for help. He struggles to describe just how grotesque his son looks, so one of the ladies in the government, when they can see each other through these screens, asks for more detailed information, and the story continues with their conversation. If you could just give me some general idea, sir the woman said to Koch's reflection on her screen, her voice just a shade kindlier. Is it a mental deformity? Physical? And if it's physical, is it? She was unprepared for what she saw. The figure of Mr. Koch was pushed violently away, and in its place she found herself looking into the face of a teenage boy, a face that covered the screen. Staring at her was a distorted horror. A funnel-shaped head full of concentric flesh furrows that traveled up toward its peak like a rutted mountain road, ending at a point from which just a sprout of dank hair emerged. It was like some kind of grotesque-looking cartoon, but it was painfully, shockingly real. It, whatever it was, spoke to her from the other side of the screen. Get a good look for yourself, sister, the boy's voice said. Now appearing on your screen, Victor Koch, ugly, ugly, ugly. Birdhead, bird head, birdhead. There was one quick, spasmodic, quaking sob, and then his voice continued almost in a whisper. Freak, freak, freak. And then the screen went black. The woman sat there motionless and quiet for a moment and then turned to her companion to the left. Did you see that? The girl shook her head. Who was it, she asked. What was it, the woman corrected her. God, I've seen all kinds, but nothing remotely like that, that thing. Soon after this, the government agreed to send Victor to another planet. And the story continues when he arrives. Victor turned on the platform and, and waited for the metal staircase that slid slowly toward him from the ship. And then the sliding doors closed. Victor Koch, a woman's voice asked, from the planet Earth? Victor turned abruptly. A young woman stood in front of him. She was smiling, holding out her hand. Her eyes were very big and very blue. Her smile was a soft, gentle, lovely thing and her head spiraled up to a point where a tuft of blonde hair sprouted. I'm very happy to welcome you, Mr. Koch, she said. Then out of the darkness from the other end of the tunnel came another group of young people. It was like watching moving church steeples. Each of them had the same funneled head. He's beautiful, one girl whispered. Shh, he'll hear you, came another girl's response. A boy took Victor's bag from him and shook his hand. Another patted him on the arm. We hope you'll like it here, Mr. Koch, the first girl said. The climate is very temperate, and in terms of language and art, I think you'll find it almost identical to earth. The cultures are very similar. As they walked toward the light at the end of the corridor, Victor found himself smiling and nodding and wanting to talk. Two of the girls jostled each other to see who would walk next to him. I think, Victor said, Feeling a warmth rise up in him. Feeling a sense of pleasure he had never felt before. I think I'll be very happy. I already feel as if, as if I belonged. And then the beautiful people left the tunnel. Victor amongst them, laughing and talking. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some people are different. Some people are weird. Some people are strange. And you could say the same thing about disciples. Disciples are called to be different. We are like Victor Koch. We are weird. We don't belong to this world. We're strange. We're queer. We're unusual. We're odd. We're bizarre. We're freaks. But don't let that alarm you. Don't let that disturb you. Why? Why? Because Jesus loves weird people. The way that the weird people on the other planet accepted Victor Koch is the way that we are received by Jesus. We are welcomed into his presence because we are in union with him. God sees us coming and he responds the same way those girls responded to Victor. Jesus loves weird people. That's our big idea today and that's what Peter wants his audience to understand. He wants them to not freak out when this world thinks that they are freaks. 1st Peter chapter 4 verse 12. He wants them to know that this world responds to Christians the same way that those kids responded to Victor. This world and this world system is full of people who don't love Jesus and they think that disciples are strange, that Christians are crazy, that believers are bizarre, that God's people are peculiar, that God's family is freaky. And the moment that Jesus Christ chose you, you became a freak in the eyes of this world. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll read verse 1 again and hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is writing to exiles, a scattered people. He's writing to a group of people that he refers specifically to as exiles. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to preach through 1 Peter is because Peter is writing to exiles. And that's exactly what we saw in our series, The City of God, when we went through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Israel was sent into exile in Babylon where they were strangers and aliens and weirdos and bizarre and out of place. And that's exactly what 1 Peter is about. So, this is the perfect series to jump to following our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. So, I promise you a formal introduction, so here you go. Some of the themes in 1 Peter, there's a theme of being chosen. Peter was chosen by Jesus to be a disciple, to be one of the apostles, John chapter 1. Peter was chosen by Jesus to be a pastor, as we saw the last couple of weeks in John chapter 21. And Peter is writing to a group of Christians that he calls elect exiles or chosen exiles. We'll look at it in more detail next week, where Peter will highlight the fact that his audience is elect. They are chosen Because of the foreknowledge of God in eternity past. Peter will tell his audience that they are a chosen race in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter tells his audience that God has called them, that he has chosen them. And then he speaks of the church in Babylon that is chosen in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. So there's this theme of being chosen by God. And there's a shepherding theme in the book of 1 Peter. There's no surprise, though, that there's a shepherding theme in this letter because Jesus told Peter to be a pastor, to be a shepherd. And he told Peter to feed his lambs and to feed his sheep. And Peter does that in this letter by continually pointing his readers to Jesus, the great shepherd. And there's a suffering theme in this letter. You can't miss it. Because Jesus Christ suffered, Peter will tell his readers that they can expect to suffer in this world. Because they are different from this world, believers can be expected to be persecuted in some form. And as the title to our series suggests, there's a theme of being exiles, being scattered. 1 Peter 1.1 we just read, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 1 Peter 2, 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So Peter is writing to a people who do not belong to this world or this world system. Peter is writing to a people who are waiting for Jesus to return and to renew and redeem and make this world new and to set up his eternal kingdom. That's where they belong, with Jesus on the new earth. Peter is the author, if you haven't figured that out yet. But Peter did not actually write this letter with his own hand. He actually dictated this letter, and his friend Silvanus wrote it down. Now, maybe Peter had bad penmanship. Maybe he had horrible handwriting. I mean, of all the disciples, if one of these guys has like chicken scratch, terrible writing that you read, I think it's Peter. He's the guy. So, Peter has a friend named Silvanus write down what he says. I get that from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 that says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So Peter is dictating this letter and his friend Silvanus with very exceptional Greek language. Takes what Peter says and cleans it up a bit and writes it down. And it's all done through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote this letter most likely in the early 60s AD, some 30 years after Jesus, so Peter's had 30 years to mature and to grow and to be transformed and conformed to the image of his Savior. He's not as rough around the edges as he was in John 21. The audience that Peter was writing to was a group of churches and Christians who were primarily Gentiles who were scattered through Asia Minor in what is now modern-day Turkey. And the order of cities that are, that are listed here are the order that a courier would have delivered copies of this letter to each church. So most likely, Sylvanus took copies of this letter to each church, and the route that he would have taken is roughly the circle that these cities make on a map. Peter's purpose in this letter is to encourage these believers to keep their eyes on Jesus as they are undergoing suffering for being Christians. To keep their eyes on the life, death, resurrection, and future return of Jesus. Peter is writing, and he's just talking about Jesus. He can't stop talking about Jesus. He can't stop talking about grace. He can't stop talking about the gospel. He's writing to a group to encourage them. And he calls them elect exiles. Briefly, let's look at these words, elect. When Peter mentions the elect, he is referring to God's election of these believers in eternity past. As I mentioned, we will look at this in more detail next week. But Peter is reminding the audience that they have been chosen by God. They didn't choose God God chose them. In love, they have been chosen by God. In eternity past, they have been chosen by God. Chosen to believe in Jesus, chosen to be united to Jesus. They're elect. And then he says they're exiles. Now what does Peter mean when he calls his audience exiles? A note in the ESV study Bible is very helpful here. Peter is not speaking of a literal exile, Believers long for their true home in the new world that is coming and for their end time inheritance, for they do not conform to the values and worldviews of this present evil age. Believers are not only exiles, but God's elect exiles. They are his chosen people, just as Israel is designated as God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Since the recipients of his letter were primarily Gentiles, Peter explicitly teaches that the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel, God's new chosen people. Dispersion, the Greek word diaspora, points to the same truth. It is typically used to describe the scattering of the Jews throughout the world, but Peter sees a parallel in the church being dispersed throughout the world. So believers are exiles in the sense that we are strangers in this world. We don't belong to this world, this world system. Because we belong to Jesus. So we are pilgrims. We are sojourners. Peter is not writing to a group of people who have been scattered from their homeland like Israel in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He's writing to a group of people who aren't at their home. When he writes, they're not with Jesus on the new earth. See, we don't belong to this world system. And what I mean by that is the values of this world, the the beliefs, the culture. This world and this creation is God's, yes, we belong to his creation. Um, When I say we don't belong to the world, I'm talking about the beliefs and the values that this world holds. Do we belong to the world? Yeah, because you're sitting in a pew that's very much a part of this world. This is God's world, and he is redeeming it and making it new. And we long for it to be made new when Jesus comes again and sets up his kingdom on the earth. That's our home. But we don't belong to this world's system, the way this world thinks. When Peter describes his audience with the Greek word diaspora, which the NIV translates as scattered and the ESV translates as the dispersion, here's what he is saying. That believers are exiles, not because they're displaced from their homeland. Believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange. God's election is what counts for their being exiles. They are not aliens, literally. They are sojourners because they are elected by God because their citizenship is in heaven rather than on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, meaning our citizenship is with Jesus. We're not going to go to heaven and stay there forever. When we die, our bodies go into the ground. Our spirits go to be with Jesus in heaven. But heaven is coming down. Heaven is very much an earth just like this, very tangible tangible, with bodies just like we have now. And we will eat with Jesus on a new earth. That's our home. The new earth as Jesus restores creation and he's in the process of restoring it and making it new now. And he will finalize that when he comes. That is our home. That is where heaven is. We are exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, transients, temporary residents, immigrants, aliens, strangers in this world precisely because God chose us. Because we are his elect. And God's choosing us. God's making us one of his elect is proof that Jesus loves weird people. Because Christians are weird. We're like Victor Koch from that night gallery episode. We don't belong to this world or this world system. So disciples are weird. God's elect are weird. God's people are weird. We don't belong to this world. We're strange. We're queer. We're unusual. We're odd. We're bizarre. We're freaks. So don't be surprised when this world hates you. Don't be surprised when you don't fit in, because we are weird, we're strange, we're queer, unusual, bizarre, and we are all of these things because Jesus chose us, because we belong to him. We are his elect Peter, elect people, as Peter will later tell his audience in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're here to tell people about Jesus. We're different because we belong to Jesus. But we're the same as people who don't belong to Jesus. We're the same as unbelievers because we are just as broken by sin as they are. We're sinners like they are. We're only different because we belong to Jesus. We're just as messed up as the world. Listen, if all that we have to offer the world is us and our good lives, then God help us. I mean, really, can you point at a Christian and say, look at my life. It's pretty good. No, you say, look at my life. It's a mess, and Jesus loves me anyway, and he forgives me, and he's conforming me to his image. If all we have to offer the world is us, then God help us. We're here to proclaim Jesus' excellencies, not ours. See what Peter said? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, chose you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We belong to Jesus. We're a people for his own possession. And that makes us weird. So, we are a scattered people because we don't belong to this world system. We don't hold the same values that this world does. So, we're different. We have differing views on marriage. We believe that marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. We have differing views on abortion. We value life, we value the sanctity of life. We're opposed to abortion, we are opposed to killing innocent babies. We're opposed to human trafficking. We are opposed to slavery. We're opposed to pedophiles who prey on children. We're opposed to child abuse. We're opposed to rape. We're opposed to terrorists who blow people up and chop off their heads. And we are opposed to racism. That ugly, vile sin that sadly still haunts our country and our churches. And we are opposed to all of these things because we see things differently, because we believe the Bible, because the word of God is our authority where we derive our beliefs. And this world sees that as very odd. This world will think that disciples are different, that Christians are crazy, believers are bizarre. This world looks at us And they are repulsed by us as if we looked like Victor Koch. They will say, I've seen all kinds. But nothing remotely like that, like that thing. These Christians are weird. This world will say that God's people are peculiar, that God's family is freaky. They will be put off by us and our beliefs. And because they think this way we know that we will suffer. Peter will drive home this message in his letter that because this world is not our home, we will suffer for being Christians. We will suffer because we belong to Jesus. We are exiles and you are naive if you think that the world's hatred for the church will fade away. Peter is writing to these disciples, to these churches, to remind them that they are in union with Jesus Christ, to remind them that they belong to him, to remind them of all that Jesus is for them, so that they can face the onslaught of trials and suffering that will come their way precisely because they belong to Jesus. He wants to give them hope as they face hatred by the world and this is precisely why John Calvin viewed the Christian life as a pilgrimage and a banquet in his book Calvin on the Christian life glorifying and enjoying God forever Michael Horton says this yet for Calvin the Christian life is a pilgrimage with a banquet spread in the wilderness for weary travelers the Christian life is a pilgrimage, a journey, with a banquet spread in the wilderness because we're weary travelers. Peter is writing to remind these churches that they're on a journey, that they are exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, transients, temporary residents, immigrants, aliens, and strangers, that they will be hated by the world. So they need strength. For the journey. It's a long journey, like John Bunyan highlights in his book Pilgrim's Progress. It's a long journey where you get weary. And so we need strength for the journey, strength to make it to the city that is to come. And we get that strength by feasting at the banquet of the gospel. By feeding on word and sacrament each week with other Christians. By feeding on all the benefits of the gospel. And Peter will feed his flock in this letter by pointing out all that God is for us in his son Jesus. Peter will remind his audience that they come to the banquet exhausted. They come as weary travelers who taste and see that the Lord is good, First Peter two: three. So since we are pilgrims on a journey to the city that is to come, and since we need refreshment, Let's get practical with this truth. If John Calvin is correct and we are weary pilgrims on a journey and along the way God spreads a banquet before us in order that we get refreshed, if John Calvin is correct in seeing the Christian life as a pilgrimage and a banquet, then it practically looks like this. Number one, God places each of us where he wants us. We're on a journey. We're not wandering aimlessly. God has put you where he put you. So where are you today? Where does Jesus have you? What job do you have? Teacher, cop, stay-at-home mom? Wherever you are, wherever Jesus has you, wherever he has led you, humbly follow him in that. Doesn't mean that you can't change jobs, doesn't mean you can move cities, but where you are right now is where God has you. He has placed you where you are so that you can point others to him. We already read it. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are in your neighborhood to be weird, to be different, to be strange, and to have your neighbors scratch their head and say, you're different. Why is that? Something about you. I haven't quite figured it out yet. You're in your neighborhood to be weird. You should be the weirdest person on your block. You should have people knocking on your doors and say, I've been staying up three nights. I can't figure you out. Who are you? What is it about you? You're just so different. You're at your workplace to be different, to be weird, to point people to Jesus and to share the hope of the gospel. Don't lose sight of that. Don't drift. John Calvin said that in order to fight our natural tendency to aimlessly drift as wanderers through life, we must realize that God has called each of us to a particular station in life. He says this, The Lord bids each one of us in all life's actions to look to his calling. For he knows with what great restlessness human nature flames, with what fickleness it is borne hither and thither, and how its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. Therefore, lest through our stupidity and rashness everything be turned topsy-turvy, he has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. And that no one may thoughtlessly transgress his limits, he has named these various kinds of livings callings. Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post so that he may not heedlessly wander about through life. God has you, or he has you, so that you can be weird and strange and different and bizarre and freaky so that people ask. As Peter will say later in his his letter about, they inquire about the hope that you have so that you're weird and different and there's something about you and you can tell them, you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, out there in the world, we're called by God to share the hope of the gospel. And in here, among the family of God, we are being transformed. And that leads to the second application of this is that sanctification is a family affair that's how calvin always talked about sanctification being conformed more and more to the image of jesus he always couched it in the language of 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 family terms that it's a family affair remember peter's writing to a group of christians but more specifically peter is writing to a group of churches so that means that your very personal walk with jesus is a community project That means that sanctification is a family affair. Yes, there is a place for your private devotions, you reading the Bible by yourself, you praying by yourself. But the picture that is consistently painted over and over and over again in the Bible is that we live the Christian life in community with a family with God's chosen people, with God's elect people that he chose in eternity past, with people that are weird because they belong to Jesus and this world doesn't understand them. But we also do life with people that are just plain weird, right? I mean, let's face it, there are some weird people in the church, right? Some of you are very weird. You like mayonnaise. That's weird, I think as soon as Adam sinned, mayonnaise was created. Some of y'all are weird. Some of you guys think I'm weird, but you know what? Jesus told me he loves me more than he loves you. (laughs) Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That word means an only child. That God loves each of us as if we were his only child. So that's why I say Jesus loves me more than he loves all y'all. Because he loves me as if I were his only child. Even though I'm weird. And he loves you as if you were the only child that he had. Have you seen parents with one kid? Man, they just doled their love out on him because they got nowhere else to spread it. That's how God feels about you. He loves you as if you yourself were his only child. So that's why I say that Jesus loves me more than he loves all of you. Since sanctification is a family affair, and since we are pilgrims on a journey, and since we will get weary on our journey, because don't you get weary? Aren't you tired? Don't you sometimes get tired of fighting sin? Does anybody feel weary? It's like the Christian life is hard. I'm weary. And since this world will hate us, it behooves us that we gather here each week to eat at the banquet that God has prepared for us. This is where we get refreshed each week, Grace. This is where we get recalibrated each week. This is where we hear the preaching of the word of God, where we eat the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we see baptisms and we are reminded of our own baptism. This is where the banquet is laid before us each week. Out there is where we journey, if you will. Out there in the world is where we are hated and misunderstood. In here, we are accepted into God's presence because of Jesus. Out there, they think we're weird. In here, we are Jesus' beloved. Out there is where the world thinks that disciples are different that Christians are crazy, that believers are bizarre, that God's people are peculiar, that God's family is freaky. Out there, that's where we're out of sync. And that's why we need to be here every week doing the very ordinary things of hearing the preaching of the Word of God and celebrating the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. This is where the banquet is. This is where weird people are invited to dinner with Jesus. And Carl Truman recently pointed this out. We are indeed set for exile. Though not an exile which pushes us to the geographical margins. It's an exile to cultural irrelevance. This singular focus, the drama of sin and redemption, inwardly known, is a great boon in times of exile. To retain an identity in the face of a hostile culture, one must belong to a vibrant community of people who know who they are. This is the New Testament pattern of Christianity. When we hear in clear and unequivocal words who we are declared to us in the sermon each week, and we, when we participate in liturgical action embodying that identity, we're well-prepared for the hostile liturgies and gospels of the world we encounter from Monday to Saturday. Listen, you're hearing false gospels Monday through Saturday. You're participating in false liturgies Monday through Saturday. You're hearing the world, and this is where you come once a week to get recalibrated. There are hostile liturgies out there, Grace. There are hostile gospels out there, and you will find them on your TVs and in your newspapers and on your computers and in your Twitter feed and on your Facebook page. There are millions of hostile liturgies out there in the world. But in here, in this sanctuary, with God's elect exiles, we hear the gospel every week to get recalibrated. We hear the gospel, the great boon in times of exiles, and we retain our identity as weird people that Jesus loves and died for and is coming back for. We're exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, transients, temporary residents, immigrants, aliens, strangers in this world, Precisely because God chose us, because we belong to Jesus, because we are his elect. And God choosing us, God making us one of his elect is proof that Jesus loves weird people. Christians are weird. Disciples are weird God's elect are weird. God's people are weird. We don't belong to this world. We're strange. We're queer. We're unusual. We're odd. We're bizarre. And we are freaks. Marion Lovett says The gospel will be offensive to the Jew, a stumbling block to the Greek, foolishness. But it alone is the power of God unto salvation. The language of the gospel will be considered narrow. Jesus will be offensive. God's law will be considered hate speech. Truth itself will be despised and beauty and goodness will become repulsive. We are already observing this trajectory. The days are coming when simply speaking the truth may land people in jail. But that is the antithesis we should expect. Only when the antithesis is maintained can battles be won. The law of God reveals the sins of people and those who have not ears to hear will lash out against godliness like Cain did against Abel. And because of our compromises, we have lost some ground to the enemy in recent days. Undoubtedly, it will be regained, but to do so will now take stronger soldiers. And God is raising them up even now and preparing them for the front lines. A biblical worldview teaches us not to fear persecution. As strange as that may sound, persecution is a means to further blessing. Death for Jesus is a door to greater life. Suppression of the church is a means for her flourishing. Trials are fires that purify, not destroy. So, we need to hold up the truth and not be ashamed of the gospel. For too long, we have promoted the government of our nation as its savior. It's time to turn back to Christ, trust Him alone, and bow our knee to Him alone as the head of all the nations and participate willingly in His triumph. Victory is ours. Christians are weird, disciples are weird. God's elect are weird. God's people are weird. We don't belong to this world. We're strange. We're queer. We're unusual. We're odd. We're bizarre. We're freaks. But we come to a Savior who says to us, welcome home, my children. Welcome to my family. And we walk in here every week like that outcast Victor Koch in that episode of Night Gallery. I think, Victor said, feeling a warmth rise up in him, feeling a sense of pleasure he had never felt before, I think I'll be very happy. I already feel as if, as if I belonged. That, my friends, is good news. We belong to Jesus, and there's nothing that this world can do to change that. We belong to Jesus, and that ought to make a warmth rise up in you now. It ought to give you a sense of pleasure. That ought to make you happy because you belong. You belong to Jesus, and that makes you weird, but he loves you because your identity is found in him, because you are his child, Christian. He loves you as if you were the only child he had. You are a part of his family, Christian, and he will never send you away to another planet. He loves you even when this world is repulsed by you. He loves you, Christian, and he will never be repulsed by you, ever. Nothing that you can ever do, Christian, can make God be repulsed at you. Nothing can separate us from his love, grace, As we're about to sing, not death nor any power of hell can separate me from the love of my Savior. Let's pray. Thank you for your amazing love, Father, that you chose us, elected us in eternity past. You did it in love. You set your love and devotion and affection upon us. We'll see that next week. But thank you for your love. That you're not repulsed by us, God. Because we know our sin. We know how we choose sin every day. But because you've covered us with the righteousness of your son, you're not repulsed by us anymore. You will never send us away to another planet. You say, come. And you love us. And we thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus who lived the life we could never live and died the death that we deserve so that we could be a part of your family forever. In Jesus' name, amen.